Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Thursday the 29th of October. Today, as another postal strike gets underway, The Guardian gets the mail moving, as our undercover reporter gets hired as a temporary worker at a sorting depot. There were a few games organised, people kind of played... A bit of basketball with the parcels. Also today in Pakistan, the worst Taliban terror attack for two years as Hillary Clinton arrives for a three-day visit. Pakistan is in the midst of an ongoing struggle against tenacious and brutal extremist groups who kill innocent people and terrorise communities. And the exact location of one of Britain's most significant battlefields, the 1485 Battle of Bosworth, is established at last. I was talking to the team and said, right, this is it. If we don't find it here, we're not going to find it. And an hour later, Malcolm sauntered along and dropped this artillery round shot into my hand, and that was it. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, Bill Overton with the news headlines. Fresh postal strikes take place today as talks broke down yesterday between management and the unions. Both sides blame each other after the collapse of three days of negotiations mediated by the TUC. Royal Mails accused the unions of playing havoc with customer confidence in the service. Union spokesperson Dave Wards claimed the negotiations had been positive and that a deal was on the table that could prevent further strikes. The latest action continues until Saturday. The US recession is expected to be declared over today, ending one of the deepest economic slumps since the Great Depression. The US economy is predicted to grow at around 3% and President Obama will see this as evidence that his fiscal stimulus package is succeeding. Unemployment figures, however, remain high and many economists insist it's far too early to celebrate an economic upturn. The row over the reclassification of cannabis has been reignited after the government's chief drug adviser accused ministers of distorting the evidence. Professor David Nutz said the reclassification of cannabis from Class C to Class B was a mistake and it's not as harmful as tobacco and alcohol. In response, the Home Office has stated Professor Nutz's views are his own and do not reflect the views of the government. And British conductor Sir Simon Rattle won't be returning to the UK in a professional capacity for some time yet. After announcing he's signed a new contract with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, Sir Simon's led Germany's top orchestra since 2002. Now, for a look at the papers. Babies without men or women is the Daily Mail top line this morning. The paper reports human eggs and sperm have been grown in a laboratory, which could change the face of parenthood. And if that's not sensational enough, the Daily Express leads with what has happened to our country reporting on the tragic case of a puppy being stamped to death by what the paper describes as teenage jobs. Incompetent, complacent and cynical is The Guardian's top line, reporting on the official report into the RAF Nimrod crash in Afghanistan, which killed all 14 on board. The accident was, the report says, caused by lamentable failures and opens BAE Systems and the Ministry of Defence up for legal action. Lloyd's to be cleared for capital tests, says the FT, reporting Alistair Darling has given the green light for Lloyd's Bank to refinance and prepare for a sale out of government control. And the back page is full of bad news for Liverpool manager Rafael Benitez as his team went down 2-1 to Arsenal last night and are now out of the Carling Cup. You can keep up with this and all the day's news and sport at guardian.co.uk. Royal Mail staff are on strike again today as talks about jobs, pay and modernisation have so far failed to resolve the dispute. The Royal Mail's taken on 30,000 casual staff to keep parcels and letters moving during the strike. And earlier this week, one of the casual workers at Royal Mail's temporary sorting office at Seven Beach near Bristol was The Guardian's reporter Stephen Morris. We had to take some mail which had been partially sorted 
and then transfer it into individual postcodes. So the one day I was doing postcodes in, in Manchester and Liverpool and the, the next day I was sorting posts which was going to, to the West Midlands, to Warsaw, to to Wolverhampton and places like that, to Birmingham. You were working as a temporary worker uh, while the Royal Mail's workforce was on strike. So, I mean, you were, to use indelicate trade union parlance, a scab. A scab, yeah. I, I have, as a union man myself, I have had difficulty with that, but I didn't cross any picket lines. They weren't on, um, they weren't on strike when I did my work. I started this Monday. Uh, and did a couple of days, and I didn't have to cross any picket lines, which would have caused me, uh, which would have caused me some some thought, some some pause for thought, really. E- even so, it was uncomfortable. We were in a satellite warehouse. We, we weren't at the main Royal Mail sorting office. We were at an old, I think it was an old B and Q warehouse, a giant place, just across the road from that. And it was very much a, a them and us. We were all agency workers. The, the proper raw man, if you like, was across the road and, and never the twain shall meet. We were advised don't uh, don't bother going to the burger van, which was just on the interface between the two because you won't be uh, very welcome there. How did you get the job? Well, I applied through through one of the uh, one of the agencies that, that's, that's doing the contract for the raw man. It, it was manpower. I simply found an email address for one of the people doing the hiring emailed him and very efficient uh, within literally minutes perhaps five minutes perhaps less than that he rang me back and he he asked me first if you've got any first aid experience because they they were desperate for somebody with first aid knowledge which I didn't have sadly but he said come along for an interview tomorrow uh, the day after which I did and um, and he went from there. And what kind of checks did the company make on you? Well, it wasn't. They, they took my passport. Um, they took passport details. They took my national insurance number, uh, which was written down on a, on a proper piece of paper, so they they knew that was they knew that was okay. They took my addresses for the last five years. Uh, they took three referees, which but they didn't phone any of them in the end. I started before they'd phoned any of them. They then said we're going to do a security check. It's going to take us probably today, and then we'll, we'll ring you back tomorrow. And you can probably start start the day after. And did the staff treat parcels with care? For the most part, they did, John. I mean, there was there was a bit of fun and games, as you can imagine. It's slightly tedious work. So at the end of a, an eight-hour shift where you'd only had two breaks of 20 minutes, people were getting pretty tired of the whole process. So the, there were a few games organised. People kind of played a bit of basketball with the parcels. But to be fair, that, that they were few and far between. Most people were were treating the, the, the parcels with care. When there was a fragile one... People were treating it uh, in, in the way you would hope. And when there was photos, people weren't bending them out of shape. There was a bit of frisbeeing around with, with uh, CD-shaped objects. but um, I'm not the... entirely encouraged by that, I must admit, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I think it may be why when we get DVDs from one of these higher places, they always stop halfway through, I think. <laughs> well, apart from undercover reporters such as yourself, what kind of people do this job? All sorts of people, all ages, um, broad range of experiences from graduates who just come out of finished university and were struggling to get their first job to people who'd been made made redundant to, to kind of 20-year-olds who hadn't got much of a clue about what they wanted to do, I suppose. But what impressed me by all of them, really, was they were there prepared to work. Pretty hard job, you know, long hours on your feet, not much, not, not much of interest to keep you going. But doing it for the minimum wage, which I, I, I found quite quite encouraging, quite impressive, really. I mean, The Guardian does offer a competitive salary, Steve, but would you be tempted to do this work again? 
You know, John, I wouldn't. I uh, I must admit, I, I was starting at 6am every morning, so I was having to get up at 4 o'clock every, every day. And I, I woke up at 4 this morning thinking, oh, I've got to go in again, and realised I didn't, and was uh, was pretty glad to be quite, to be truthful. Stephen Morris, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash business. Also on The Guardian's website today. Hello, my name's James Randerson, and I edit The Guardian's environment website. On the site today, you can find our poll of the greatest environmental villains of the decade. Well, in fact, we've been asking you on Twitter for your ideas for people to include in the poll. Not surprisingly, George Bush comes up quite a lot. So if you want to add to the list, then please get a hold of us on Twitter. That's Guardian Eco. And we'll also have a poll later in the day. On a different note, we've got Fred Pierce writing his greenwash column about private jets and private jet companies that try and make you feel good about flying around by offering to offset your emissions. Um, it's all greenwash, says, says Fred. And lastly, the man who's decided to live without money. Uh, amongst other things, he uses cuttlefish bones and fennel to brush his teeth with. That's all on environmentguardian.co.uk. The O2 in Greenwich, south-east London, has a special place in the hearts of Michael Jackson fans. It was going to be the venue of Jacko's comeback concerts, rehearsals for which formed the basis of the new film This Is It. Well, now it's hosting an exhibition of his personal objects, including his trademark gloves, his anti-gravity boots, they've got his regal stuff, a crown, a throne, his Rolls Royce, and there are oil paintings of the great man and a model palace from his Neverland ranch. So, what do the fans think? Yeah, I like his gloves and stuff like that. Yeah, I like black. I like loads. I can't say which one's my favourite. This is probably the nearest thing that anyone's going to have now to getting close to this guy. You know, there's no other way to have any kind of attachment with the guy except for listening to the music and, you know, watching all these movies, watching his dance, watch everything, anything to do with inspiring us about Michael Jackson. And this is the next biggest thing like getting next to his possessions seeing everything close looking at the gloves looking at the fine you know fine detail anything that he ever created all his jackets you know every kind of every kind of image he's ever had this is the best thing anyone could have done especially after the death of Michael Jackson yeah when we used to be little we used to just put it on on the TV like with the earth song we just used to like all get together like go to the door frames and just hold on we used to it, it was part of our childhood mostly, that's why. Um, I was actually the first person in the exhibition, so I was extremely honoured and privileged to be the first person there. For me, it was a huge honour being, being surrounded by Michael Jackson's personal possessions and belongings. I actually was overcome by emotion, I actually started crying. Um, it was truly an, an amazing experience, and it's an experience I'll never, ever forget. Michael Jackson, the official exhibition, is at O2 for the next three months. More than 90 people were killed yesterday when the deadliest Taliban bombing in two years ripped through a market in the Pakistani city of Peshawar. The attack coincided with a visit to Islamabad by the US Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. The Guardian's Declan Walsh is in the Pakistani capital. Well, this is the biggest Taliban uh, blast in Pakistan for the past two years in terms of fatalities. Basically, it seems that a car bomb went off in a very crowded 
market area in the old part of in the old city of Peshawar. So far, the authorities are saying about 95 people have been killed, many of them women and children, um, and there are over 200 people who've been rushed to local hospitals where an emergency has been declared, um, and the authorities are appealing for fresh blood supplies. And it's notable that civilians were targeted in this attack. Yeah, this seems to be part of a pattern by Taliban militants ever since the army uh, started preparations for the uh, assault on their South Waziristan stronghold. Um, That operation started about 10 days ago. um, And we've just seen these uh, very varied Taliban attacks across northwest frontier and Punjab provinces, um, where they've used a variety of different methods from suicide attacks, car bombs, targeted assassinations, and so on, um, against a variety of targets, everything from very hard targets like police headquarters and even the, the, the army headquarters in Ralpindi, to you know, um, crowded marketplaces such as this one. The Taliban seem to be trying to keep the government on the back foot um, and at the same time show that they can strike at will in any place in the country and inflict very, uh, very high casualties. And this attack was timed to coincide with the visit of the American Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Yes, that's right. I mean, this is the the latest of several attacks, but it seems on the face of things that the Taliban have reserved this very large bomb uh, for the arrival of Hillary Clinton. Um, she was just had just arrived in Pakistan when this bomb went off. Um, about four or five hours later, she gave a press conference with the foreign minister, Shah Mahmood Qureshi, um, at which she described these Taliban's as being uh, brutal people who were a shared enemy of both Pakistan and the U.S. I know that in recent weeks, Pakistan has endured a barrage of attacks. And I would like to convey my sympathy and that of the American people to the people of Pakistan. But our relationship with Pakistan goes far beyond security. The terrorists and extremists are very good at destroying, but they cannot build. And Hillary Clinton said the US was turning a new page in its relations with Pakistan. How do ordinary Pakistanis regard the Obama administration? I think quite poorly in the sense that anti-Americanism is really um, riding on a high here at the moment. Uh, People are very frustrated with the violence that's been rocking the country, particularly on television. You see a lot of pundits who are blaming either America or India uh, for being either directly or indirectly responsible for this. Uh, A lot of Pakistanis see that the war in Afghanistan is the root cause of the turmoil that's spreading in their country. Um, and and they see that, that you know that the U.S. bears at least some responsibility for what's been going on. There's also um, been a lot of negative coverage in the press here about American plans to expand the embassy, which triggered a lot of conspiracy theories about huge numbers of American Marines being posted to Pakistan. Um, and so all of this has really had a very high, uh, a, a very strong impact on the country's perception towards the U.S. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. I'm John Dennis. This is Guardian Daily. Coming up, celebrity chef Clarissa Dixon-Wright discusses why she would be prepared to go to prison for her right to hunt. It's very difficult to explain to people who've never been hair coaxing 
because you get these terrifying pictures, of, which are all fakes. I mean, there was a wonderful one that the antis put out of two greyhounds tearing a hair to pieces. I mean, that's not what happens. But first, for more than 500 years, historians have argued over the exact site of the Battle of Bosworth, where King Richard III died. But now, a surprise discovery has settled the argument, as Martin Wainwright reports. I'm at Bosworth in Leicestershire, which is where one of the most decisive battles in English history was fought when Henry Tudor overthrew King Richard II, ending the Wars of the Roses, founding the Tudor dynasty. It's the famous occasion when the crown was found in a thorn bush uh, and, and seized by Henry. King Richard is supposed to have said, a horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. But the extraordinary thing is that more than 500 years after this great battle, uh, we still haven't known where it took place, only that it was somewhere Uh, near Bosworth, overlooked by Ambien Hill, where I am, which is where the very big and good visitor centre is, and it's swarming with children today. But now we have found it. Um, Archaeologists working uh, with a million pounds from the National Lottery over the last uh, three years have combed this area, and they finally discovered uh, where the battle was fought. Uh, And I spoke to the leader of the team, Glenn Ford. We went back to the original accounts of the battle, We got the specialist to rework them, reinterpret them, and then we took out of them the topographical details that we might use to place it in the landscape. And the key thing was a marsh. One of the key elements was a marsh around which Henry's army manoeuvred. So we then reconstructed the landscape. Landscape archaeology, documentary research. We worked out what the medieval landscape looked like, where the marsh could and couldn't be, ruled out Ambient Hill. We then searched for peat deposits. We found the peat deposits. Soil scientists worked on that. Once we got it, we did paleoenvironmental analysis. Birmingham and Bradford universities helped us there. And that came back negative. It told us they were Roman. As recently as March this year, you were saying you thought, you know, we're still not, we still haven't found it. And then? Yeah, we, we went to the last area that we hadn't searched, stood in the gateway of the field, and I was talking to the team and said, right, this is it. If we don't find it here, we're not going to find it. And an hour later, Malcolm sauntered along and dropped this artillery round shot into my hand, and that was it. So we've discovered that the battle wasn't fought where we've always um, thought it was, uh, not very far away, but nonetheless, uh, people coming here to this lovely visitor centre and from next year will be having to take a bit of a hike. And I've just got a couple here who've uh, been having... Um, I don't know if it's breakfast or, or, or lunch, <laughs> brunch. But, but you're the first people that have just popped out of the press conference, so you're the first to know about this. W- what's your reaction? Uh, it's interesting to hear because we, we haven't been here for, for a number of years and uh, we used to come quite a lot and we've, we've done the, the battlefield trails as they were and uh, looking out and trying to spot the, the various places where events were thought to have taken place and obviously now that's all changed maybe we've got to come and do it all again <laughs> <laughs> and do you find it interesting that i mean this battle took place uh, now i just have to do my sums 1485 so that's that's um, more than 500 years ago uh, and we only just now seem to have sorted out where it was Yes, it's, it's quite hard to imagine that we haven't actually found anything before this. But um, I understand that they've actually found, from what you've said, uh, quite a lot of um, new things that will be really interesting to see. And it will be able to give you a whole new vista on, on sort of where the battle took place and uh, obviously some more authenticity now. Martin Wainwright reporting.
Clarissa Dixon-Wright used to be a practising barrister. Her big break as a celebrity chef came in the cookery programme Two Fat Ladies. She told G2's Hannah Poole why she was recently convicted of illegal hair coursing. I pleaded guilty um, to a technicality under the Act, which the judge quite rightly said, you know, under the Act, the way it's written, this is hair coursing, and you have to go out and test the law. If you don't test the law, you never get anywhere. And so the minute she found in the earlier case that it was technically coursing, then Sir Mark Prescott and I pleaded guilty. And I, for went and published a statement saying that we were pleading guilty without saying that it was our complete understanding that it was a technical guilty and that we would get away with no problems. But why hair course at all? Um, it's very difficult to explain to people who've never been hair coursing because you get these terrifying pictures, of, which are all fakes. I mean, there was a wonderful one that the aunties put out of two greyhounds tearing a hair to pieces. I mean, that's not what happens. And obviously the person who produced it didn't know much about coursing because they were both wearing red collars. And in a course, one greyhound wears a white collar and one greyhound wears a red collar, so you never get that situation. It's the oldest sport. It goes back... 5,000 BC, it, the object of coursing, and this is under rules, this is legal hair, well, what used to be legal hair coursing, is not to kill the hair. The hair gets away 95% of the time, um, is to watch the greyhounds work. And I mean, I've seen hares sit up and sort of practically thumb their nose at the greyhound. The, um, and since coursing's been banned, estates are just shooting out their hairs. I think I know the answer to this, but are you sorry? Am I sorry? About what? About doing that, about... T- I mean, you, you said you were testing the law on purpose, no, but do you I'm regret doing it? No, I don't regret doing it in the least. Um, is it true that you receive regular death threats from the anti-lobby? Do I receive regular... Yes, I do. I, um, I get fewer postal ones now since I said that um, I would have an um, exhibition of my... Um, of my death threat, death mail to raise money for the campaign for hunting. But yes, I do. I get sort of mysterious telephone calls and I never have an email because it gets trashed so quickly. Um, It never lasts more than about three months. So yes, I do. Clarissa Dixon-Wright and her new book, Rifling Through My Drawers, is published by Hodder and Stoughton. Phil Maynard and Jason Phipps produced today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. 